It's March 15th, 1995, and a young woman named Elizabeth Hatfield is getting ready to go to bed. Elizabeth is 18 years old, having only recently graduated from Okeechobee High School. She lives in a small, single-wide trailer in a neighborhood called Four Seasons. As Elizabeth lays down in her pull-out sofa bed, next to her is her eight-month-old daughter, Veronica. She takes one last look at her sleeping baby before closing her eyes and drifting off. The next day, Elizabeth's mother, Christine, stops by to drop off some formula for the baby. She pulls into the driveway next to the trailer and honks the horn to let Elizabeth know she's there. But no one comes outside. She waits a second longer, and then she tells her son to get out of the car and go knock on the door. As he approaches the steps to the front door, he notices something strange. A window on the front door had been broken. He points out the broken window to his mom in the car. She gets out and starts heading to the trailer herself. As his mom is walking up, he opens the door and calls out for his sister but he hears no response. As Christine is walking towards her daughter's trailer, she watches her son open the door and walk in. Just as she gets to the door, her son comes back and says something that will change her life forever. He says, she's been shot. She walks in and sees her daughter's lifeless body with multiple gunshot wounds. Overwhelmed with emotion, she starts screaming, beating the walls of the trailer. As she's crying, she notices her granddaughter, Elizabeth's eight-month-old baby, still alive and laying in the crib next to her. Through tears, she picks up the baby and they run to a neighbor's house to call the police. The horrific events of that night would leave a painful scar on the Okeechobee community for years to come. We'll learn what led up to that night and track a court case that would ultimately span three different trials in today's episode of True Okie.
Two years before she was murdered, Elizabeth was a student at Okeechobee High School. Since Okeechobee is a smaller county, it only has one high school. So once you're there, you really get a chance to meet everybody that's your age in the county. And it was in those classrooms at OHS that Elizabeth met a boy named Ryan Harris. Now, Elizabeth was from a poorer family, while Ryan was more from a middle-class family. Ryan's family owned a home, and he was good with computers. This is the mid-90s, so it's the early days of the internet. And Ryan and his friends would spend a lot of their free time on online bulletin boards. Still, despite their different backgrounds, Elizabeth and Ryan made a connection. And what began as a friendship turned into a relationship. And it wasn't long until Elizabeth was pregnant with Ryan's baby. During their senior year, as Elizabeth's pregnancy is starting to show, some classmates at OHS made fun of her. She couldn't afford maternity clothes, so her clothes began to stretch out and were too tight. And they teased her about that. After graduation, Elizabeth moved into Ryan's parents' house. She gives birth to a baby girl, Veronica, in August of 1994. Elizabeth gets a job at Kmart while Ryan was accepted into the Explorer program with the Fort Pierce Police Department. Things seem to be headed in a good direction for the young couple. Until they weren't. Arguments and fights between the two began back when they lived with Ryan's parents. Those fights continued when they moved out on their own. Ryan never had a steady job, while Elizabeth took up side jobs, babysitting and cleaning, in addition to working at Kmart to help pay the bills. The relationship fell apart slowly at first and then all at once. In January of 1995, Elizabeth broke up with Ryan, took Veronica and moved out of their apartment. Elizabeth's mother, Christine, showed up to help her move, and on that day, Ryan is alleged to have pulled a gun on Christine. On January 17th, Elizabeth asks for a temporary order of protection against Ryan, saying that he hit her after she said she planned to keep custody of their baby. A week later, Ryan is arrested for showing up to Elizabeth's grandparents' house and refusing to leave. Two weeks after that, Ryan takes Elizabeth to court, accusing her of denying visitations to the baby. Only a few days after that day in court, Ryan shows up to Elizabeth's new trailer and forces his way inside. Elizabeth tells deputies that he ripped the cords out of the phone when she threatened to call police. Eventually, she's able to push him outside, lock the door, and call for help. Ryan is arrested on three warrants for violating the protection order, trespassing, and battery. He's given a bail of $11,000, but it was dropped and he was released to his mother. Only a few weeks later, Elizabeth is found murdered next to her baby.
The police responding to the call after Elizabeth was murdered are keenly aware of the history between her and Ryan. So on the morning she was found, two sheriff deputies head to Ryan's parents' house to pay him a visit. The deputies arrive at the house around 10 a.m. They knock on the door, but no one responds. They try again, knocking louder this time. Again, no response. They go around to the backyard and repeat the process on the back door, knocking and getting no response. But just then, Ryan's mother pulls into the driveway. She says she got a call about Elizabeth and was coming home to tell Ryan. The deputies ask if they can speak to Ryan and she agrees. As they enter the house, she goes into Ryan's room first and they overhear her tell him that Elizabeth has been found shot dead. Now, the deputies reported that they heard Ryan saying no and crying. As they enter his room, they see Ryan sitting on the edge of the bed, hugging his mother. But they say they don't see any tears. The deputies described it as crying sounds with no tears. Something else they noticed was that Ryan responded immediately when his mother spoke to him, and that he hadn't looked like he was asleep, which made them wonder why he hadn't answered the door when they were knocking for 10 minutes. The deputies tell Ryan they're bringing him in for questioning, and the sheriff's office obtains a search warrant for the house. Inside, they find two guns. When they learn that one of those guns matches the spent casings found at Elizabeth's house, they place Ryan under arrest for the murder of Elizabeth Hatfield. But then, something happens that no one was expecting. A witness comes forward with information that turns the entire case on its head. The witness says, Ryan didn't kill Elizabeth. And they know that because they were there the night she died. We had a report uh, initially that a young woman had been found uh, shot, murdered, uh, and that her young baby was in the home uh, where she had been found. This is Katrina Elskin. She was working for the Okeechobee News at the time of the murder and covered the trial as it went through the court system. Of course, the immediate suspect would be the estranged boyfriend and the father of the child. It was kind of circulating in the community that he was being charged. He, you know, he had been taken in and that he was being charged. And um, there was a girl named Heather Brown who told her father that they've got the wrong person. Ryan didn't do it. And her father questioned her about, well, how do you know that? And she said she had been there in the car with them and that it was Kevin who had gone in and, and shot Elizabeth. And the father took this girl to the cops to tell her story. Heather says the person who shot Elizabeth was Kevin Cuts. So who's Kevin Cuts? 
Kevin was one of Ryan's friends and was a year younger than him. The two had a similar interest in computers and online bulletin boards. Kevin wore black. He was obsessed with death, and he talked about it often. He created this image of himself that a lot of teens do when they're trying to be different. The identity of the dark, edgy outsider. But Kevin would push that persona even further. He would read the Satanic Bible and act cavalier when talking about death and killing. Like most teenagers, that identity was mostly fabricated. I mean, at that point in your life, you're waking up at 6 in the morning, eating Pop-Tarts, and going to your assigned seat in homeroom. How dark and edgy can you be, really? Let's be serious here. But that aspect of Kevin's personality was something Ryan was keenly aware of. After the breakup and the first custody battles, Ryan began venting to Kevin, telling him how horrible Elizabeth was, how she was ruining his life, how it would be better if she was just dead. Once that ice was broken, the two began talking about it all the time, planning all the ways they could do it like giving her poison or running her car off the road. Ryan also tells Kevin that Elizabeth is abusing their baby. Kevin's friend Heather is around for some of those conversations. She would be playing games on the computer while Kevin and Ryan talked. She assumed the two are joking when they mentioned killing Elizabeth. Just dark and edgy humor. But it wasn't just edgy humor. Those supposed jokes would become all too real very soon. And when Ryan realizes Elizabeth is moving on and maybe in the early stages of dating someone else, the talks of killing her increase even more. Then, one night, Heather says she's at Kevin's when the phone rings. She overhears Kevin say, Are you sure she's going to be home by herself? Are you sure you want to do this tonight? After he hangs up the phone, Kevin turns to her and says, I gotta go get Ryan. Tonight's the night. I have to kill Elizabeth. Heather tells Kevin she wants to go home, and he replies that he'll take her home after picking up Ryan. They pick up Ryan down the street from where he lives with his parents. A shadow emerges from the dark, and Ryan gets in the car. Instead of taking Heather home, they drive to Four Seasons, the neighborhood where Elizabeth lives. They circle her trailer a few times before pulling into the driveway. It's around 4 a.m. Heather says that from the back seat, Ryan pulls out a gun and places it on the center console. Kevin puts on a pair of gloves and then zones out. He just stares straight ahead for 10 minutes. Finally, Ryan breaks the silence and says, Don't think, just run in there and run back out. Suddenly, Kevin opens his door and runs towards the trailer. Heather says she hears a window break, and then, gunshots. She doesn't remember how many, only that there were a lot. 
Kevin runs back to the car and says, I can't believe I did that. Then he says, I think I shot the baby. But instead of going back to check on the baby, they leave, heading back to drop Ryan off at his parents' house. By a miracle, though, the baby wasn't hit by any of the bullets and was found by her grandmother the next day when they discovered Elizabeth. After Heather is back at her house, she tells her family about what happened, and they bring her to the sheriff's office. So according to Heather, Kevin was the one who pulled the trigger, killing Elizabeth. Both Kevin and Ryan are arrested, and at the upcoming trial, the Okeechobee community learns the morbid truth about what happened that night. At Ryan's trial in 1997, the Okeechobee community learns that he and Kevin Cutts had been talking about and planning the murder of his ex-girlfriend for weeks. Prosecutors make the case that Ryan was the mastermind of the entire plan. He knew he'd be the prime suspect, but he thought since he didn't actually pull the trigger that no jury would convict him. It'd be the perfect crime. Kevin Cutts pleaded guilty and agreed to testify against Ryan in exchange for avoiding the death penalty. Instead, he received a life sentence in prison. Kevin's testimony mirrored what Heather Brown alleged to have happened on the night Elizabeth died. That he drove to pick up Ryan, was given a gun, walked in, shot Elizabeth. Prosecutors say Kevin shot Elizabeth 12 times. Kevin said that he broke the window on the front door, unlocked it, and stepped through. He says the noise of the glass breaking partially woke Elizabeth up. Still half asleep, she looks up and says, What are you doing here? Kevin then raised his gun and fired. He says he heard the baby begin to cry as he turned around and ran back to the car. Ryan's defense stated that all the conversations about killing Elizabeth were just a fantasy, and that he never intended to go through with it, that it was something that Kevin did on his own. He was a weird kid, obsessed with death, and he took Ryan's joke serious. Ryan's defense says he wasn't even with Kevin on the night Elizabeth was killed. He was at home, in bed. But... How did Kevin get Ryan's gun to kill Elizabeth? Well, Ryan claims he had given the gun to Kevin to go target shooting. And when Kevin brought it back that morning, he simply put it back on his father's nightstand. His defense claimed that Ryan was completely innocent. His only crime was venting to a disturbed younger man who was obsessed with death and didn't believe in God who took everything he said way too seriously. The prosecution pointed to the testimony of both Heather and Kevin, who stated that Ryan was not only with them on the night Elizabeth was murdered, but handed Kevin the gun and pushed him to do it. And the prosecutors pointed out something that didn't make sense in Ryan's defense. They said, if you knew Kevin had borrowed your gun on the same night Elizabeth was murdered, 
Why didn't you say anything about that to detectives when they questioned you? You say this guy is obsessed with killing, and you've talked about killing Elizabeth with him for weeks. So then he borrows your gun. Elizabeth is found shot dead, and you don't say anything? Now, logically, that argument makes sense. But I want you to remember this moment, because it turned out to be one of the biggest blunders in this case. So just put a pin in that statement. If you knew Kevin had your father's gun when Elizabeth died, why didn't you say anything? Ryan's trial concludes in February of 1997. He had been charged with first-degree murder and state attorneys were seeking the death penalty. The jury deliberated 12 hours over two days. And when they return their verdict, it leaves everyone confused. They find Ryan Harris guilty. Not of first-degree murder. Instead, they find him guilty of second-degree murder. Now, prosecutors were baffled. The definition of second-degree murder is an intentional killing that was not premeditated. But the evidence presented at the trial showed clear premeditation. And if you didn't believe the evidence that he had helped plan the killing, then you should have found him innocent. It was strange. Even Ryan's defense attorneys were confused by the verdict. I had a chance to talk to someone who was on the jury afterwards. And, all, you know, all during the trial, the jury's not allowed to discuss their deliberations. But at the end, the judge tells the jury, it's up to you if you want to talk about it or not. Well, I knew someone who was on the jury. Uh, she was an older woman uh, who, who was in the newspaper office off and on to buy a subscription or bring us a classified ad or something. We, we had, you know, we had an acquaintance. And after the, um, the trial, she told me that the jury had the choice of first degree, second degree, or third degree. She said the jury didn't like the fact that the shooter had gotten life in prison, but if Ryan was convicted of first degree murder, he could get the death penalty, even though he hadn't pulled the trigger. And they didn't like that. And especially uh, some of the younger members of the jury didn't like that because you know he was a teenager, everybody involved was a teenager, um, they didn't like the idea of sentencing someone so young, uh, potentially, to, to death. So they wound up compromising on second degree. Now, the problem with that is the facts of the case didn't fit second degree, but they compromised on second degree. Ryan was convicted and sentenced to life in prison. But remember that argument made by prosecutors? That by not telling police that he had given Kevin his gun on the same night Elizabeth died, that it made him seem guilty? Well, on appeal, Ryan's attorneys argued that Ryan had a constitutional right to remain silent. That by implying his silence on that proved he was guilty, the government was infringing on that right. And in 1999, the 4th District Court of Appeals agreed and he was granted a retrial. The location of the new trial was moved from Okeechobee to Palm Beach County. Kevin would come back to testify again, and it appeared the years of prison between the two trials had changed him. Kevin Cutts in the first trial 
was, I don't want to say innocent, but, but not more naive. Um, he had believed this guy and, you know, he was trying to play tough, but he wasn't tough. And, and at that point, I think Ryan probably still had quite a bit of influence over him. A lot of people had said that, you know, that, that Kevin was really influenced by Ryan and, you know, he was the follower, he wasn't the leader. But after being in prison for several years, Kevin had gotten much, much harder, uh, much colder. And he, his testimony really let the jury know that Ryan had used him. You know, at that point, he believed that Ryan had used him. In fact, in, in the testimony, he said that he felt like he had been programmed to go in and kill, that, that he didn't even feel when he did it, he felt like he was a machine that had been programmed. The attorney asked him, well, programmed by who? And he said, programmed by Ryan. He felt like, you know, he had programmed him to do this. And at that point, Kevin had enough time to realize that Ryan had used him and now he was in prison for the rest of his life. And Ryan had, at that point, he believed lied to him about the child abuse. Also, that strange decision by the jury to convict Ryan of second-degree murder would have a huge effect on the new trial. When they got the new trial, the prosecutor couldn't try for first degree because he had already been found not guilty of first degree. He could only retry him for second or third degree. Again, the facts of the case didn't fit second degree. The new jury wound up with third degree. At his new trial, Ryan was found guilty of manslaughter. And with credit for time served, he was released in 2001, only six years after Elizabeth died. Elizabeth's mother was disappointed with the news, obviously. After the trial, she tells reporters that although she's disappointed, she wasn't surprised. She says, quote, I'm never surprised by a decision in life. I've lived with this for years now. Imagine what that family went through. Their daughter tries to follow all the legal steps to protect herself from her ex-boyfriend who was stalking her. And the justice system just totally failed them. After the breakup, Elizabeth did what she was supposed to do and filed orders of protection to keep him away from her. But when Ryan was arrested for violating that order of protection after he showed up to her grandparents' house and refused to leave, the court system tells Elizabeth, well, technically you didn't ask for the order to say he couldn't be near you. You just asked that he not harass or abuse you. So those charges against Ryan were dropped. So she amends her order to cover that technicality. Then a week and a half later, Ryan forces his way into her house, yanks the cords out of the phone, and she has to physically push him out of the door. Ryan's arrested for that, but he's let out on the very same day. One month later, Elizabeth is murdered. And now, only a few years after she died, the family has to watch as Ryan, the man they blame for her death, essentially get out on time served. All thanks to a baffling decision by an Okeechobee jury and a legal misstep by a state prosecutor. Although he was released in 2001, 
It didn't take long until Ryan had another run-in with the law. A few years later, Ryan is living in Tallahassee, and he already has the attention of law enforcement. You remember when I said that Ryan had spent time in the Explorer program with the Fort Pierce Police Department? Well, in Tallahassee, he's seen driving a former police vehicle from Texas that he had rigged up with a police scanner and equipment to resemble a police patrol unit. That caught the attention of local deputies, but it gets much worse from there. In 2004, he's arrested on charges of sexual assault of a 16-year-old. According to a report in the Okeechobee News, while living in Tallahassee, Ryan started having conversations online with a 16-year-old boy. First, they talk about sexual preferences. Then, things are pushed even further. Ryan drives out to where the boy lives and has sex with him. He's arrested after police catch him with the boy at a cemetery. This time, he's sentenced to 15 years in prison. He was released in 2018 and is now on the sex offenders list. He is in North Florida serving a court-ordered term of community monitoring under the authority of the Department of Corrections. As for Kevin Cutts, he was serving a life sentence after pleading guilty and testifying against Ryan. But in 2012, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that automatically sentencing a juvenile to life in prison violated the Eighth Amendment, which protects against cruel and unusual punishment. Kevin was 17 at the time he killed Elizabeth, meaning as a juvenile, he now had a claim for an appeal for his automatic life sentence. Kevin filed a motion, and in 2016, a third trial regarding the murder of Elizabeth Hatfield was put on the docket in Okeechobee. At the new trial, Kevin testifies that he was misled and programmed by Ryan to kill Elizabeth. Quote, Ryan wanted her dead. Ryan said she was abusing the baby and using drugs around the baby. I found out later those were lies and I murdered an innocent young woman because of that. Much of the trial was a repeat of the same facts that were presented in court nearly 20 years earlier. But there was one new witness who took the stand. And that was Elizabeth's daughter. Now a 21-year-old woman. She had been raised by her grandparents and made the trip back to Okeechobee to testify at the trial of her own mother's murder. She asked the court to not reduce Kevin's sentence. At the stand, Katie, as she now went by, told the judge that she believed Kevin knew what he was doing. She said, quote, he chose to take that life of solitude behind bars. The court agreed with her and Kevin was once again sentenced to life in prison on first-degree murder.
One thing that stood out to me in Katie's testimony was when she revealed that her family had recently given her her mother's old diary. She told the court she read every page of it and that she thinks her mom would have been her best friend. It's kind of weird, she said, to be so much like my mother, but I never knew her. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing or leave a review. You can also follow True Oki on Instagram and Facebook at True Oki. If you have a case you want me to look into, reach out to me at my email, trueokipodcast at gmail.com. <laughs>